Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter ship show today's episode of the peter ship show podcast is sponsored by ladder Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. You just go to ladderlife.com slash gold. Well, we had a pretty big reversal Tuesday today, especially in the beaten down NASDAQ, which on yesterday's close was down 11% from its recent high. That put the index into official correction territory, not quite a bear market, which is down 20%. Correction defined as being down 10% or more, and we just made it uh, at down 11%. But today, the NASDAQ finished up about 3.7%, a bit of a sell-off into the close, not really that noticeable, but at one point, I think we were up better than 5%. Some real crazy moves today especially in some of the real high flyers that had gotten taken to the cleaners like Tesla. Tesla, when it closed yesterday, was down about 38%, I think, from its high and down about 35% in the one month because yesterday was the one-month anniversary of Elon Musk's announcement that he had used Tesla funds, shareholder money, to put $1.5 billion into Bitcoin. And so one month ago yesterday, and Tesla shares were down 35% since that announcement. Now, of course, Bitcoin itself had gone in the other direction. It was up almost exactly 35% since the announcement. In fact, it's up even more now. As I am recording the podcast, Bitcoin is back above 54000 It also means that the market cap of all the uh, uh, Bitcoin out there is once again above $1 trillion. But Tesla was up almost 20% today, as were some of these other uh, high-flying darlings that got beat up. Are the types of stocks that are in some of these ARK ETFs, one in particular, the ARK Innovators ETF, is loaded up with all these high-priced uh, momentum stocks. And, you know, I saw the founder of that fund family, Kathy Wood, was interviewed yesterday, I think around the three o'clock hour on CNBC, to talk about the shellacking that her fund had had in the last couple of weeks as all these uh, stocks were getting killed. And, you know, I think last year she was, I think she got some kind of award for like great stock picker because her ETFs 
had fantastic performance. One in particular is that ARK Innovators ETF, which supposedly is, you know, investing in these cutting edge innovative stocks. You know, the top holdings include Tesla, Square, Roku, Zillow, Spotify, Shopify, Zoom, you know, a lot of these companies. Now, these are not unknown companies. It's not like she is uncovering some hidden gems. She's finding these innovative companies that nobody really knows about, and then she's buying them before the crowd finds out about them. I mean, she's buying the stocks that the crowd is already in and that the crowd continues to pile into. Her strategy is just to buy the most expensive, overhyped, overvalued stocks and just hope they keep going up. And so far, it's worked. And so last year, she was all the rage because all those stocks kept getting more and more expensive. Well, now that some of the air is coming out of the bubble, she doesn't look so smart. I mean, it's real easy to look smart in a bull market when everybody else is making the same dumb decisions you are. The problem is, how do you look smart in the bear market when the air comes out of the bubble? And you know, it doesn't even make sense to have an ETF with all those names in them because they're not even uncorrelated with one another. I mean, these are all well-known household names, mega cap stocks, way overpriced, and they all trade in the same direction. So if one goes down, they're all going down. I mean, you don't really get diversification when you have a lot of names of stocks that are all highly correlated with one another and they're all way overvalued. I mean, I get it. Again, if what she was doing, as I suggested, she was finding a lot of stocks that nobody knew about innovative companies that were on the cutting edge of something, but they were kind of obscure. They weren't household names. And so you really didn't know maybe they were going to succeed and maybe they wouldn't, right? Maybe they'd hit a home run or maybe they'd strike out. So if you had a diversified pool of those type of stocks, well, that would make sense. Instead of putting all your eggs in one basket, you spread it over a number of different stocks and some of them will do really well and that will uh, make up for the ones that don't. But if you're just buying all these expensive stocks that everybody knows about, I mean, yes, maybe some will go down 90% and some will only go down 70%, but they're either all going to go up or down together. And so I think a lot of people who are in these ETFs who think they're diversified are in for a rude awakening because they're just over-concentrating in a highly speculative sector in the most speculative overpriced names. I mean, all they need is just buy one of the stocks, right? You don't even need the ETF. You don't even need to pay the fees. Just pick one or two names and buy them yourself. Now, I don't think these stocks have bottomed yet. This was a you know turnaround Tuesday. Notoriously, these are counter-trend days. I don't think the NASDAQ has seen the lows. I don't think these stocks are finished coming down. I think the market needs to go lower before people get scared enough for there to be a bottom. I mean, I'd like to see the NASDAQ, or I think the NASDAQ, will go down below 11,000. Right now, it's around 13,000. So I think it has a ways to go. I think there's probably some pretty solid support as you get down closer to 10,000. And the question is, does the Fed even have the stomach to allow the market to get down to 10,000? That's really the test. At what point does the pain in the stock market bring the Fed back into the game with a bigger dose of QE? And a lot of that, of course, is going to depend on what's happening in the bond market, which I want to talk to you about as well. But before I, I do, I want to talk a little bit more about Kathy Wood, because while she was being interviewed on CNBC to defend the stocks like Tesla, she was, of course, asked about Bitcoin. And she's very bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, that goes without saying. She likes everything that's overpriced and in a bubble. And so why would Bitcoin be any exception? And she said some of the most ridiculous or she made one of some of the most ridiculous comments I've ever heard about Bitcoin. One is she was asked about its uh, correlation to risk assets. And, you know, was she concerned that Bitcoin seems to be highly correlated with other risk assets? And she kind of dismissed that. And she said right now, the asset to which Bitcoin most correlates is real estate, which, you know, makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, how is Bitcoin like real estate? I mean, first of all, real estate doesn't really trade. Right. I mean, you buy a house and you're not like day trading it. You know, people hold houses for years before they turn them over. So you really can't look at the trading dynamics of real estate 
and say it's anything like Bitcoin. I mean, you see Bitcoin can go up and down uh, 20% in a day. I mean, that doesn't happen in the real estate market. So I don't even know what she's talking about unless she's looking at a long-term chart, maybe 10 years and seeing, hey, Bitcoin is up over the last 10 years and so is real estate and therefore they're correlated, which makes no sense whatsoever other than the fact that real estate is also in a bubble, albeit a smaller bubble than Bitcoin as far as the price is diverging from the underlying fundamental value. But to say that Bitcoin is correlated to real estate is completely ridiculous. I mean, how is this woman supposed to be so smart, yet she makes an observation so dumb? Yet it gets even worse because then she went on to make an even dumber observation in her speculation in the future. She said that Bitcoin is so dissimilar to risk assets. She says that Bitcoin, in her mind, is more like a bond, right? A really, really safe investment that you buy for income, right? Even though Bitcoin has no income. So how you would compare Bitcoin to a bond, I don't get it at all. I mean, if you want to compare it to currency and say it's better than just stuffing dollars under your mattress, but to try to say it somehow relates to bonds that people buy for income when you have zero income on Bitcoin. But what she said was in the future, she thought that Bitcoin would be so correlated to bonds that it would actually take up a big piece of what would normally be a bond allocation in a portfolio. So these are almost her exact words. She said something like, if you have a strategy that's 60% equities and 40% bonds, what you might end up doing is being 60% equities, 20% bonds, and then 20% Bitcoin. I mean, so you're not taking a slice of your equity portfolio, your speculative portfolio, and allocating that to Bitcoin, you're taking part of your lower risk income generating portion of your portfolio and you're allocating that to Bitcoin, which again makes absolutely no sense given the fact that Bitcoin has zero yield. Now I get it, there's a lot of bonds today that don't have any yield either, but that's a bubble. And to expect that that bubble is going to continue indefinitely without ever popping is ridiculous. At some point, the bond bubble is going to pop and yields are going to go much higher. But the yield on Bitcoin will never be above zero. In fact, Bitcoin is actually a negative yielding asset because of the expense that the miners charge to maintain the network and validate all the transactions. So Bitcoin is a negative yielding currency. It's just that right now, nobody cares about the negative yield because the price keeps going up because the bubble keeps getting bigger. But that negative yield is going to be more and more expensive as the price is dropping. And then the people who still hold their Bitcoin have to keep paying the toll as the price keeps falling. But I want to circle back to the stock market and also to the bond market and talk about why we actually had a rally yesterday. Because I think today's reversal rally really started yesterday on Monday. And in fact, it started before the open. Because if you look at where the stock futures were trading, and in particular, you look at some of these NASDAQ stocks like Tesla, and you look at how low they were trading in the pre-market, the market was getting killed. And also, um, interest rates were continuing to, to uh, edge higher. And that was part of the reason that stocks were getting killed. And then what happened is David Tepper, who is one of the most widely followed and I guess well-respected equity hedge fund managers, right? He comes out and he gives an interview to Joe Kernan on CNBC. And I don't know if the interview was on the air. It didn't look like it was, but then Joe Kernan like comes on and it's an emergency uh, special announcement. I've got this breaking news and it's from David Tepper. I just had an interview with David Tepper and David Tepper says, buy the stock market. He's balls to the walls long or something like that. This is a great time to buy stocks. And so he puts in this big buy signal before the market opens to try to generate uh, some interest. Now, whether or not he already bought a bunch of stocks and he talked his book hoping that uh, his bullish statements would cause a rally in the stocks that he just bought. I don't know, but he came out and he was very, very bullish. The interesting fact is his rationale for being bullish. And the reason that he said that now he's bullish on stocks is because he's no longer as bearish on bonds because he thinks the yields on the 10 years have topped out. 
And the reason he thinks that the yields have topped out is because he's looking at the yield to a Japanese investor on U.S. treasuries after you hedge out the currency risk. So he was looking at the yield of 1.4% on a 10-year U.S. Treasury. And he said, hey, now for the first time, the Japanese can hedge the currency risk, meaning make sure they don't take a loss on the dollar going down. They can hedge out the currency risk and still have about a 50 basis point positive yield if they hold to maturity, right? Which means you hold the treasury for 10 years And if you do that, you can hedge the currency and you can make a whopping 50 basis points per year. And supposedly this is just so exciting that the Japanese are going to all line up for the privilege of loaning money to the U.S. government to earn a half a percent a year for the next 10 years, which I think is laughable. I mean, he, first of all, was saying, well, it's a lot better than buying Japanese government bonds, which are only yielding 10 basis points, right? So you can get 40 basis points more than that. Uh, by buying hedged uh, U.S. treasuries. It's not exactly like the Japanese are lining up to buy JGBs yielding 10 basis points either. That's why the Bank of Japan's balance sheet is so enormous because they're buying up all these low-yielding bonds that no one in the private sector in their right mind would buy. And I think the same thing is going to apply to U.S. treasuries. Why is anybody going to look at a half a percent yield for 10 years as something that they are really excited about. Given what's happening in every market all around the world, people are making huge returns. Look, you got stocks that can go up 20% in one day. Somebody's going to settle for a half a percent a year over 10 years. That means over 10 years, you wait 10 years and you can get a 5% return. Over 10 years, there are stocks that'll move up 5% in 10 minutes. Who's going to wait 10 years to get 5%? So A, I don't think that there's going to be this rush of demand coming from Japan that's going to put a floor uh, beneath uh, our, our bond market. And of course, the, 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 the other interesting aspect about it is that in order to get that 50 basis points, you have to hedge, right? You have to sell dollars forward to hedge your risk because obviously... If you're only getting a meager a half a percent a year over 10 years, which is 5%, what if over that 10-year period, the U.S. dollar goes down by 10%? Well, now you've lost 5% over 10 years in yen instead of gaining 5%. So obviously, you can't get into such a low-yielding investment without being able to hedge the currency risk. And this is the problem. If enough Japanese actually thought, a half a percent yield was so juicy that they really wanted a piece of that. And you saw a lot of Japanese buying U.S. treasuries and then hedging the currency risk by selling dollars. That would put downward pressure on the dollar. And what that would mean is that the cost of hedging would be going up. So if a lot of people tried to hedge their yen or hedge their dollars by selling the dollar against the yen, to protect the yen value of their investment, that alone would put enough downward pressure on the dollar to increase the cost of the hedge so that that 50 basis point profit would disappear. And now they couldn't do it anymore. And of course, not everybody even recognizes that because Joe Kernan, when he was reporting about the fact that the Japanese were gonna buy a bunch of US treasuries and then hedge the currency risk, he actually said, well, that's gonna be good for the dollar, right? All the Japanese buying US treasuries could be supportive of the U.S. dollar. He missed the part about the hedge. It's not supportive of the dollar if you're selling the dollar when you're buying the treasuries. The only way the Japanese would be supporting the U.S. dollar by buying the U.S. treasury market is if they did it unhedged. But who would be crazy enough to do that? The yield is so low, it doesn't make any sense to take all that currency risk. Now, if the yield were much higher, right, if you can get an 8% yield on U.S. Treasuries, well, maybe somebody would be willing to do that and take the risk of the dollar going down because they might figure, well, if it goes down, I got a lot of protection because I'm getting a big yield. But when you look at the enormity of our deficits, uh, why anybody would want to loan any money to the U.S. government knowing how much money we're borrowing and how much money we're printing One of the other developments that happened over this weekend 
was that the U.S. Senate now passed the $1.9 trillion spending bill, otherwise known as the COVID relief bill or the stimulus bill. But where is the money coming for? There are no tax increases in this $1.9 trillion spending bill. It's all spending. So 100% of that $1.9 trillion, and of course, it's going to cost way more than $2 trillion. They are underestimating what this thing is going to cost. But as I mentioned on my last podcast, the government is already spending $8 trillion a year. Add this too, and now you're talking about $10 trillion of spending in the next year, assuming no new spending bills are passed, which I doubt, because as soon as the ink is dry on this, they're going to start writing a, a an infrastructure bill. And where's all that money going to come from? They're going to print that too. They're not even collecting $3.5 trillion in taxes right now. And even if they raise taxes, it's probably not going to apply to this year, right? Because no one wants to raise taxes now while we're struggling in COVID. So even if the Democrats raise taxes, it may not start until 2022. So they're not getting any extra tax revenue. Uh, It's all going to be borrowed. It's all going to be printed. So this is massive inflation. So given all that inflation, who in their right mind is going to loan the U.S. government all this money? I mean, the Japanese are not that dumb. So I think the whole justification for Tepper's bullishness makes absolutely no sense at all. If he's bullish on the stock market because he thinks the Japanese have backstopped the bond market, that they're going to load up the truck with low-yielding treasuries because they can eke out a half a percent return for the next 10 years. Look, if David Tepper thinks a half a percent return over the next 10 years is so great, why doesn't he sign up for it? I mean, he wouldn't go anywhere near those treasuries. So why would he assume the Japanese would? You know, I read another article today on Zero Hedge about the backlog of container ships that is building up off the coast of California, which is destroying the record of the backup that they had. I think a few years ago, there was a strike by some of the dock workers. And so as a result of that strike, uh, you had a big delay and you had all these ships queuing up uh, you know, to, to unload their cargo. And he said, what's happening now in Los Angeles and Long Beach dwarfs what was happening back then. Only now it's not a strike. What it is, is American economy is so screwed up. It's so weak. It's so unproductive, right? We're making so little that we're importing a record amount of stuff. The world is basically single-handedly you know, supporting our economy by providing us with all of this stuff. And how is it that we're getting all this stuff? Are we making a lot of stuff and trading it for that stuff? No, we're not making any stuff. The merchandise trade deficit is skyrocketing. We're printing all this money and then the Federal Reserve gives it out to Americans who aren't productive, many of them who don't even have jobs, but many Americans who do have jobs are in the service sector, so they're not producing anything that they can trade, but they're still using that money to buy the stuff that other people that are living in actual viable economies, stronger economies that are saving and producing, and we're buying all of that stuff with all the money that we're printing. Meanwhile, we're deluding ourselves into thinking that what we have here is a genuine economy. What we actually have is a genuine bubble. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. 
Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We have people spending printed money to buy the stuff that everybody else produces. And the evidence of that are these long queues of container ships lined up uh, to bring all this merchandise in the United States. Now, a lot of people say, oh, see, this shows what a rich country we are because we can afford to buy all this stuff. No, we can't afford to buy any of that stuff. That's the point. We can't make it. It's the countries that are making this stuff that could afford it, but instead they're selling it to us because they still value the dollars that we're giving them in exchange for the goods that they've produced. But the only thing that's going to put a stop to this is going to be a crash in the dollar. That's it. That, this party will not end until the foreign exchange markets take the punch roll away. The Fed's not going to do it. They're not going to raise interest rates. They're not going to end this party prematurely. It's going to keep on going until foreigners bring it to an end. And these massive trade deficits, these long lines of container ships are all the evidence that you would need to show how phony this recovery is and to understand that the only thing that's going to bring it to an end is going to be a crash in the dollar, that's going to stop the American spending spree. And when that happens, gold's going through the roof. In fact, before that happens, gold's going to already be going because the markets are going to sense this. The dollar will start to fall gradually before it falls precipitously. Right now, it's kind of a lull between the storm. You still have a lot of people that expect the Fed to be able to raise rates, to be able to fight off inflation. It's amazing to me why you have so many people that always think the Fed can do the impossible. So many people thought the Fed could normalize interest rates. They thought it could shrink its balance sheet. I kept talking about how these are impossible things for the Fed to do, yet for some reason the markets believe the Fed anyway. Well, now the Fed is talking about how they have the tools to fight inflation, and if it becomes a problem, they'll quickly do something about it. And as I said on the last podcast, they don't have the tools, or to the extent that they have the tool, it's impossible to use it, and I don't know why the markets still don't understand that. But I think they will. What might bring that understanding to come a little bit quicker will be a bigger move down in the stock market where the Fed is forced uh, to rescue the market. But also it could be a more rapid deterioration in the employment picture. And as unemployment starts to tick up with uh, prices rising, we know which problem the Fed is going to concentrate on, especially if rising prices is the reason that people start losing their jobs. As the cost of living goes up and people spend less money because everything costs more, and as businesses react to increasing costs by laying off workers, and now the Fed has the twin dragons of unemployment and inflation, we know which one they're going to slay and which one they're going to ignore. And when the markets figure this out, it's lights out for the dollar. And before that happens, you need to get your gold. Over the weekend, I read a story about a French billionaire who died in a helicopter accident. And every time I hear about those type of situations, it makes you think about how fragile life is. And you start to think about how the people that you love would deal financially 
with a sudden loss of your life. And if you are the primary breadwinner in your family, you have a wife, you have young children, you got to have insurance. But what you don't need is whole life. You need term because term life insurance is the best insurance money can buy because you can buy the most amount of coverage for the least amount of money. And that's what you want when you're buying insurance. Don't let a, an insurance salesman talk you into whole life. If you want investments, I can help you with that. But if you want insurance, you can go to ladder because you need term. And the beauty of term is if inflation really picks up when you have whole life, inflation destroys the value of your death benefit. With term, if inflation increases costs, you can always increase the coverage and then pay a little bit more premium. But when you're young and you're healthy, you can get a lot of life insurance for a little bit of money. And then the money that you save by not buying whole life, you can build yourself a great investment portfolio, preferably with me at Europe Pacific Capital. Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. Just log on with your phone, laptop, and apply. Within a few minutes, you'll find out instantly if you're approved. After that, you can decide whether you want to move forward. The plans are offered at personalized rates that can flex as your needs change. The prices are affordable, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel the policy at any time. Since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the time to cross that off your list. Check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com gold. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold. I want to talk a little bit now, though, about some new anecdotal evidence that we are really living in the greatest financial bubble in world history. I mean, this puts the Mississippi bubble, uh, the tulip bubble to shame as far as the enormity of what is going on. I mean, talk about popular delusions and the madness of crowds. There has never been a crowd more mad uh, than the one that we have today. And what I'm talking about now are NFTs. These are non-fungible tokens. And this differentiates between a fungible token, which would be a Bitcoin or Ether or any of these cryptocurrencies. They are fungible tokens in that they're all the same, right? If I have a Bitcoin and you have a Bitcoin, we've got the same coin. And in theory, that is why Bitcoin is supposed to be able to function as money, apart from the fact that it's not, but it has that in common with gold in that if I have an ounce of gold, my ounce of gold is identical to your ounce of gold because all gold is the same. Unlike, let's say, diamonds, if I have a diamond and you have a diamond, even if they're the same carat weight, uh, they're not the same because they have a different cut, a different color, a different clarity. That's not the case with gold. Same thing with Bitcoin. So if I am a merchant and I am selling a product or a service, and let's say the price is you know, a Bitcoin, which obviously would be a very expensive thing now, given that Bitcoin is you know, back above $50,000 uh, a Bitcoin. But let's say I'm selling something for a Bitcoin. Anybody with a Bitcoin can buy it. It doesn't matter which Bitcoin you have because they're all the same. Similarly, if I want to loan you a Bitcoin and you're going to pay me back in a year, you don't have to pay me back the same Bitcoin I lend you. It doesn't matter. Any Bitcoin will do. I mean, the reason you can't make a loan in Bitcoin, the reason you can't price goods and services in Bitcoin is because they're far too volatile, especially for a loan, certainly a longer term loan. No one knows what the hell Bitcoin is going to be worth a year from now, let alone five or 10 years from now. So you would have no way to realistically uh, do a loan uh, in, 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 in Bitcoin. But I don't really want to talk about Bitcoin. I want to talk about the non-fungible tokens. And the difference here between these non-fungible tokens and the fungible tokens like Bitcoin and Ether is that all of these are unique. They're not the same. And so if I have one and you have one, we don't have the same token. Each one is unique in and of itself. And I personally believe that there can be some usefulness to these non-fungible tokens just not the ones that everybody is speculating on right now. What would be a legitimate use for a non-fungible token? I think to the extent that you can record ownership of a tangible physical thing on a non-fungible token, and then you can use that token as proof of ownership. For example, the registration of a car or the deed to a home. Right. If I own a car and I want to sell you the car, 
instead of having to go to the DMV with the title and go through all that work, if I can just uh, take your money and then give you my non-fungible token, that would show that you own the car and then you would take the car, right? But you would actually have the car and the non-fungible token is just a more convenient way for me to transfer title of that car from me to you and now for you to resell the car to somebody else and you would transfer uh, the title that way. But what's going on right now is they're basically having these non-fungible tokens that in no way relate to a real world object. It'd be like having a non-fungible token, which was just a picture of a car. It didn't reference an actual car that you owned. All you owned was the token and the token was a, a, a digital image of a really cool car, right? Well, what good is a digital image of a really cool car? Well, you can't drive it, you can't do anything with it. It's just there as an image in your computer. But the idea is that, well, what if I'm a famous guy and I painted that car or it was a picture of my car and maybe I put a cryptographic autograph on it and said, hey, this is the only picture that's going to be identical to that one. And now you can buy it and you can hold on to it. And now you can sell it to somebody else in the future. Maybe somebody in the future will be even dumber than you and be willing to pay an even higher price to buy that you know, non-fungible token, which is just a, an image of a car, and then you can you can sell it for a higher price. And this is going on, you know, in the sports world right now. You have a lot of these, I think, basketball players, they're selling non-fungible tokens, which are images of shots that they made. And people, you're, you're buying this, you know, I don't know, original, but you're buying uh, a one-time or exclusive uh, image of this shot, and now you own it in your... Uh, non-fungible token collection. But none of these things are ever going to have any real value. I mean, I hear people talking about how, well, you know, the value of a rare painting is that it's rare. And if you have a rare uh, non-fungible token, well, now we have a rare thing in a digital form. And so it could be every much as valuable as, you know, a, a impressionist painting uh, from... Monet or, you know, Manet or any of these big uh, uh, painters, which of course is sheer nonsense. It's not just that something is scarce that makes it valuable. You have to look at the other contexts that make it valuable. I mean, if you have a painting that was painted hundreds of years ago by a famous artist who's long dead and everybody recognizes him as one of the greatest artists ever and not many of his paintings actually survived over the centuries intact and you happen to own one of these rare pieces by this world-renowned famous artist and you have the actual painting, well, that has value. But if I just have a digital representation of a painting that obviously can live indefinitely on a computer... And, you know, what? that's not going to have any value. There's no real historical significance to owning something like that. You know, they're, they're talking about it or comparing these non-fungible tokens to like baseball cards. Look, th the reason that baseball cards are valuable and some baseball cards are valuable, most aren't worth anything. You know, when something is produced to be a collectible, it rarely has much value. Because when something is produced to be a collectible, the minute people have it, they put it away and they don't use it and they take care of it and it stays in pristine condition. The reason some of these baseball cards are very valuable is because they were initially produced uh, not to be saved, but to be played with by kids. I mean, yeah, they collected them, they traded them, but they didn't you know, put them in a, in a bag somewhere and seal them and, and, and not touch them. Uh, and then if you can find you know, the rookie card from a guy who later became a great player. But of course, when he's a rookie, no one knows if he's going to be that good. And so how many people are going to hold on to a rookie card when they have no idea, you know, that this guy is going to end up being a great player. And so there's not as many of these cards that are in, in great condition. And so they become valuable in the future. Uh, but they, they're scarce because they were initially not produced to be a collectible. When you have people now mass producing these things, advertising them as collectibles, and everybody is holding them and setting them aside, uh, they're not going to ever have any value. They have value because they weren't created to be collected. And in the future, all of a sudden they became desirable. And because there weren't that many of them, uh, now they're worth something. I mean, same thing with, with cars. 
I mean, why are some of these cars that are 100 years old, 80 years old, one of the reasons they're so valuable is because most people wrecked them. They didn't put these cars and, and store them for all these uh, decades and, and, and keep them out of the sun and, and, and take all the work and, and didn't drive the hell out of them when they first bought them. So a lot of these cars, I mean, th there's not that many of them. But when you own one of these cars, there's a real historic significance to owning something that was produced, you know, uh, way in the past. And there's only so many of them that survived over the decades. And, and you've got one of them. You know, maybe there's six of them in the world and you've got one of these. And if you're really into cars, then this car is going to be really important. But I don't think any of these non-fungible tokens that people are buying now, even if they're one of a kind, so what? Because whoever is creating them can create a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand one of a kind things. And pretty soon, I mean, you got so many people owning a one-of-a-kind thing, how much difference is there really between your one-of-a-kind item and the other 1,000 or 10,000 people that have a one-of-a-kind item that's almost you know, very similar to the one-of-a-kind item that you have? And of course, everybody who gets one of these things, they're all going to be in, in perfect condition. No, I mean, nothing is going to happen over the years or decades. I mean, they're, they're computer images. They can't fade. So whatever somebody buys is there forever. And so there's never going to be any real value. But obviously, to the extent that we're in a financial mania and people are dumb enough to buy anything, then who knows? I mean, there's so much money sloshing around, right? People are looking for stuff to buy and people are looking to get rich quick. And this is the latest gimmick. Now, you know, they actually did this already. Crypto kitties. I remember talking about these things. This happened during the first uh, Bitcoin bubble when Bitcoin went up to 20,000. That's when you had the introduction of these crypto kitties, which were simply uh, uh, digital images of cats that people were buying and they were bidding them up to crazy prices. I have no idea, you know, what happened to these crypto kitties, if you could get any money for them anymore, but they were a fad and it died out pretty quickly. I mean, they were almost. Uh, like a, a digital Beanie Baby. I mean, somebody should have actually called them Crypto Beanie Babies. Maybe the irony of that, you know, <laughs> would, would have made them even more appealing. But that's really what they were. And the whole thing crashed. What's going on right now with these non-fungible tokens is just the latest iteration of Crypto Kitties, only it's gone broader. I mean, you have all kinds of artists, uh, musicians. A lot of people are out there issuing... Uh, I mean, pretty, I mean, mass quantities. I mean, maybe you could have limited edition runs of these non-fungible tokens. So I can issue a thousand of them uh, and uh, like a print, you can have number one, one person has number two, one person has number three. And so now there's uh, a thousand and that's the limited edition. And so a thousand people can have it and then nobody else. And each person has, you know, one of a thousand, but whatever it is, this is all a bunch of nonsense. This whole thing is going to implode and I doubt any of these uh, non-fungible tokens that do not relate to a real item, a real-world product. Yes, there can be some applications to this technology where you know you have these uh, tokens that can be valuable and maybe could be traded. I mean, maybe a car company I mentioned you know is going to be coming out with a car and you can buy the car in advance. Maybe they're going to deliver it in a, in a year or two and you can just buy uh, the non-fungible token and now you have the right to that car when it's delivered or off the assembly line. And maybe if you change your mind and you don't want it, you can sell the right to somebody else. And so now they can buy the car and maybe have the price locked in. And maybe companies that are going to produce products, they can pre-sell these tokens and then they can get the money that they need to produce their products and then they can deliver the products into the future, but they collect the money in advance. Maybe they can give people a discount to buy the tokens now, and it may be a better financing than, than going to a bank. I mean, I can think of all sorts of things, uh, airline frequent flyer miles. I mean, there are a lot of things that could be uh, tokenized and put on a blockchain, but to simply buy a token that has no relationship to any real world value that's a bunch of nonsense, just like uh, cryptocurrencies that are backed by nothing. If you had a cryptocurrency that was backed by gold or backed by something, then I can see the value of the cryptocurrency. But to have a cryptocurrency that's just fiat, that's backed by nothing, 
Well, you know, you defeat the whole purpose of trying to get away from the fiat system because you've just gone from a public fiat system to a private fiat system. But at the end of the day, you got nothing but air. And that's the same thing that you've got when you own one of these non-fungible tokens. You've got air. And I don't care if you can uh, pull up the image on your computer. You don't have anything that anybody is going to value once the air comes out of this bubble. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But I wanted to speak specifically about another completely ridiculous type of non-fungible token, and that is buying tweets. And I'm not making this up. In fact, I first heard about it because Jack Dorsey's first tweet, right? When he first set up Twitter, he put out a tweet, right? And obviously there was nobody there, right? So if, if, if somebody tweets on Twitter and there's nobody there to hear it, uh, you know, d- does it make a sound? Uh, but I don't know if there's anybody else was listening to his tweets, but he tweeted out, I just set up Twitter and he was the first guy. And so that was the first tweet. And there already is a bid, although they call it an offer, kind of like real estate. I-, I always think in terms of when someone wants to buy something, I'm like a-, a stock guy and I think of bids, offers I think of trying to sell. But right now there's a website, vcent.company. And if you want to buy uh, a tweet, you don't put in a bid, you put in an offer. And that's how the realtors, that's the lingo of a realtor, make an offer, right? So somebody has an offer for two and a half million dollars to buy uh, the very first tweet. Now, what do you own when you buy that tweet? I mean, because you don't own the tweet itself because the tweet is still there on Twitter. I guess if you go into Jack Dorsey's Twitter account and and scroll down, you'd see his first tweet. What you get is some kind of copy of that tweet uh, on a digital token and Jack Dorsey, I guess, who would get the two and a half million dollars if he accepts the author, would, I guess, affix a cryptographic signature to the tweet, uh, you know, indicating its authenticity. And the company guarantees that you're the only one that's going to own that particular tweet, right? Even though Jack Dorsey may have tens of thousands of tweets since he started Twitter, you own the copy of that one. I mean, everybody else can see the tweet if they go online, but you own the official uh, version that Jack Dorsey has said, yep, I'm going to sign this one and you own this minted. They call it a minted tweet. Now, of all the complete nonsense, how this could be worth anything is beyond me. And this guy who's willing to pay two and a half million, and apparently this guy is the same one that paid more than that, to have lunch with Warren Buffett. Now, that at least went to charity. Uh, And of course, you know, you get Warren Buffett's ear for a while. So who knows? If you convince him to do something, it could be worth the price of the lunch. I think this guy was going to try to convince Warren Buffett uh, to uh, endorse Bitcoin or to buy Bitcoin. And I don't think that happened at all. But maybe he got some other publicity uh, for that lunch. But I don't know what you get by, you know, blowing two and a half million dollars on a tweet. Now, interestingly enough, Dorsey hasn't bothered to collect the two and a half million dollars because the offer is still out there. He hasn't accepted it. Uh, So, I mean, you know, he's a billionaire, I guess. So maybe two and a half million dollars doesn't mean much to him, but maybe he thinks somebody else is going to outbid him. You know, I, I doubt it. I mean, I can't believe that there's a bid that high. But the craziest thing, forget about the fact that people are trying to buy Jack Dorsey's tweets. People are actually trying to buy my tweets. And of course, the only tweets they're trying to buy, and I just, I went up there and I can see a list of all my tweets that people want to buy. And the way you indicate that you want to buy a tweet is you cut and paste the URL of the tweet into the program, and then you make your offer, right? First, you got to set up an account. And I think the currency that they're trading is um, Ether. I mean, I haven't actually, you know, set up my wallet yet, so I'm not even positioned to accept these offers yet, but I will be. I mean, I'm going to sell some of these tweets. I mean, why not? People want to buy them. I mean, I might as well sell them. I mean, who am I to deny the public uh, what they want? But um, I can look at all the tweets that people want to buy. And the one thing they all have in common 
is they're pretty much all related to Bitcoin, right? And that makes sense because the people who are interested in buying uh, non-fungible tokens are people who are into the fungible tokens. It's the Bitcoin crypto crowd that has an interest in the latest uh, you know, speculative mania that is related uh, to crypto stuff. And so that is these NFTs. And so it makes sense that they're interested. But the tweets that have the most value are the ones where I look the most foolish in the minds of a Bitcoin bull. And so their tweets were, I'm saying something negative about Bitcoin when the price of Bitcoin is much lower than it is now. So obviously the earlier tweets are going to have more value because I look more foolish, right? But if you're really bullish on Bitcoin and you think Bitcoin's going to a million, well, then a lot of the tweets I'm putting out now are going to look pretty foolish when Bitcoin's a million. So you better buy those tweets now, you know, before they become a lot more valuable. But here are some of the tweets in case anybody is interested. Now, I'm not encouraging anybody to buy these tweets. In fact, I think you're a complete fool if you buy these tweets. I think my tweets have no value. Uh, but again, you know, I said the same thing about Bitcoin and look what happened to Bitcoin. I mean, so is it possible that somebody could buy one of my tweets and then find some greater fool to pay an even higher price for the same tweet in the future? Sure. Who am I to say why not? I mean, anything can happen. I mean, this is the craziest bubble, as I've said, we've ever lived in. And so if people are dumb enough to pay money for a tweet, well, then who's to say someone else won't be even dumber to pay even more? But the top offer I've got right now for one of my tweets, and this one is vintage 2013. So this is an old one. It's been aging for, what, eight years? And obviously it hasn't aged well uh, from my perspective. Uh, this tweet reads, thinking of buying Bitcoin instead of precious metals? Question mark, think again, right? That's one of my tweets. The top offer on this tweet now, I kid you not, is $4,000. Somebody is offering $4,000 to buy this tweet. And you know, there was a guy that was 3000 before that, and then somebody outbid him. And before the $3,000 guy, there was a guy for $2,550. I first noticed it when somebody was offering $500 for the tweet. I thought that was ridiculous. And now it's up to 4000 Now, I haven't even accepted the offer yet because I haven't even finished setting up my wallet. So who knows what this tweet is ultimately going to go for? I mean, maybe somebody will outbid this guy and pay more than $4,000 to own nothing to own a copy of a tweet, right? I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. Now, is it possible that somebody could buy my tweet for $4,000 and then six months later sell it for $6,000? I guess, I guess it's possible. I mean, the fact that somebody is dumb enough to pay 4,000, I can't rule out the fact that somebody else might be even dumber and pay six, then maybe someone will pay 10. Who the hell knows? But the other thing about it is every time one of these things sells, I get another 10%. So if I sell this tweet for $4,000 and I get 95% of that, right? The house, the company takes 5%. But then if it trades again, right? The person who owns it gets the profit, but I still get cut in. I get 10% and the house takes another slice. So obviously no one's going to be day trading these things because the, the cost is too high because of this big commission. But look, somebody wants to buy it. I mean, fine. Here's another one. So I got a $200 offer on this tweet, right? So there's a big, I mean, that five, there's a big drop now. I mean, apparently this one is the most valuable because, you know, I look the most foolish. But again, if Bitcoin goes to a million, I'm going to look foolish in all these tweets. So maybe people should gobble them up now while they have a chance. I mean, I personally think that of all the people on Twitter, I am the most popular Bitcoin bear on Twitter by far. So to the extent that Bitcoin goes to a million and you want to have the tweets that make the bears look the most foolish, mine are going to be it. I mean, I'm like the Babe Ruth of anti-Bitcoin, right? I mean, I'm like the Babe Ruth rookie card. If you get some of my early uh, uh, cards, except, you know, I have, there's a, probably a lot more of these tweets than those rookie Babe Ruth cards. But um, here, here's one, the guy's offering $200, uh, from the guy who had a $50,000 price target for Bitcoin, my gold forecast came a lot closer than your Bitcoin forecast. Plus, at least gold will eventually hit 5K. Bitcoin will never hit 50K. So that's a tweet where I said that Bitcoin would never hit 50,000. And I was sending that to Tommy Lee and Joe Curtin at Squawk Box. I think that's a pretty 
good tweet because I really look foolish there. Uh, I mean, who? I mean, there's no way I'm letting this baby go for 200 bucks. I mean, I mean, that's probably one of the tweets where I look the most foolish because I actually said Bitcoin will never hit 50k, and here we are as I'm recording this, we're at 54,000. So if you want to own a tweet that makes Peter Schiff look foolish, here's your chance. Uh, but you're not going to get it for 200 bucks because I ain't accepting that offer. I mean, I might take this other guy's $4,000 offer, but I can't destroy the market for my tweets by letting one go for 200 bucks. Here's another guy that wants to steal one for 200 bucks. Here's a tweet. So he really told me to stick it up my ass. That's a question. Someone wants to pay $200 for that. Now that's a reply to a reply from the Elon Musk tweet where he sent me a eggplant. And so somebody told me another meaning of an eggplant. And so I replied to that. And now somebody wants to pay 200 bucks for it. Here's one here. This guy wants to buy this one for a buck. Fat chance. No way I'm going to sell this thing for a dollar, right? That would crash the whole market of my tweets. But here's this one. Uh, America was founded by rugged individuals who created government to secure their rights and leave them alone. Americans today want government to violate other people's rights, steal their stuff, and give it to them. The home of the free has become the land of the freeloader. Hey, wait a minute. That's the top tweet. That's the tweet that I had pinned to the top of my Twitter account because I think that tweet really defines what I'm about, right? It's the only non-Bitcoin-related tweet I think that anybody wants to buy, and it's only worth a buck. (laughs) All right, well, I'm keeping that tweet. I can't. I cannot sell a Peter Schiff tweet for a buck. Not an original Peter Schiff. Here, here's the one where I'm, rep- I'm replying to Anthony Pompliano. This guy is offering 20 bucks. Look, this tweet is worth a hell of a lot more than 20 bucks because I look like a complete fool in this tweet. This is replying to Anthony Pompliano. I did not forget my password. My wallet forgot my password. I mean, that's a beautiful. I mean, where do I look more foolish? Because I didn't know the difference between my, uh, my PIN and my password, right? So, I mean, I mean, if... Any tweet makes me look like a complete fool in the Bitcoin world. It's that tweet. And that's January 19th, 2020. I mean, come on. I mean, someone's got to be willing to pay more than 20 bucks for that bad boy. I mean, this thing could moon uh, from $20. I think that's a great tweet. Here's one. A guy only wants to pay me $10 for this tweet. If Bitcoin is the solution to every problem, why is every major company associated with Bitcoin now in a bear market? Tesla, MicroStrategy, Square, Twitter, PayPal, Overstock, Galaxy Holdings, and Grayscale. Bitcoin trusts are all trading near bear market territory. Now, this is a brand new tweet. I just tweeted this thing out. This is like not even a week old. But maybe the guy who wants to buy this one is thinking forward. And he's thinking that all these stocks are going to be so much higher that not only am I going to look like a fool for trashing Bitcoin, but I'll look like a bigger fool for being negative on Tesla and MicroStrategy and Square. So he's trying to think forward. And, and buy that one for only $10, right? But hey, not going to get that past me. You're not getting that tweet for 10 bucks, So you're going to have to up your bid. Uh, here's one. Here's another guy. Here's a $200 offer. Again, this tweet's a steal at $200, which is why I'm not going to let him steal it from me. This one, again, relates to my lost Bitcoin. This is my original tweet where I thought I lost my Bitcoin. Here's the tweet. I just lost all the Bitcoin I've ever owned. My wallet got corrupted somehow and my password is no longer valid. So now not only is my Bitcoin intrinsically worthless, it has no market value either. I knew owning Bitcoin was a bad idea. I just never realized it was this bad. That is gold. I mean, that is Twitter anti-Bitcoin gold. I mean, you got to buy that one. I mean, if you want to have a collection of Peter Schiff tweets, I mean, how could that not be in there? Peter Schiff anti-Bitcoin tweets. 200 bucks, come on. You're making me laugh. 200 bucks. Up. Here's another guy that's trying to steal one for a buck. Listen to this one. I got a dollar offer on this tweet. Instead of putting laser beams on their eyes, Bitcoin cult members should have been selling some of their Bitcoin. While everybody was laser focused on 100,000, Bitcoin is now closer to zero than the target. Perhaps those laser eyes will remain on much longer than originally planned. See, this guy, again, he's thinking forward. He's thinking to the future when Bitcoin hits 100,000. How foolish will I look when Bitcoin hits 100,000? This tweet could be worth a hell of a lot more money when Bitcoin hits 100000 That's why I'm not going to let it go for a mere dollar. So if you want this tweet, you're going to have to pay up. Here's one. Okay, here's a $50 offer. This is the last one I, I've got an offer on for 50 bucks. Here, 
Against my advice, my son Spencer Schiff just bought 11 more Bitcoin. Oh, even more Bitcoin, not 11. He's not that rich. (laughs) Whose advice do you want to follow? A 57-year-old experienced investor business owner who's been an investing professional for over 30 years or an 18-year-old college freshman who's never had a job. And my son smoked me. He got 81.3% of the vote. um, And I got 18.7. Almost 83,000 people voted. I think this could be one of the most valuable Bitcoin tweets in history, especially with the popularity of this rivalry uh, between uh, my son and myself. So, I mean, I think this is really uh, could ultimately end up being part of uh, the Bitcoin Twitter, you know, culture. Uh, and so you, you got to own this one. In fact, I just noticed that the Elon Musk tweet where he tweeted me a eggplant, that one is bidding at $20,000. Somebody is willing to pay Elon Musk $20,000 for his eggplant tweet. In fact, that is the number one, two, three, four, fifth most expensive tweet being bid. I mean, I'm number five. I mean, Elon Musk has got the fourth tweet where he's just tweeting one word, Doge. He's also got the number three most expensive tweet. I'm considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. That was a controversial tweet. I can see the value in that tweet. That bad boy right now is being offered $42,069. Maybe he thought that $69 would be enough to sweeten the pot and Elon might take him up on it. I mean, obviously, Elon couldn't care less about $42,000. Then the second most uh, expensive offer is to buy CZ Binance, slap yourself if you sold Bitcoin under 10000 I don't really see the appeal of that tweet, but it's going for $121,000. But my uh, tweet, or, or basically Elon Musk's tweet to me, is the only tweet of the top tweets that people want to buy that was actually directed at a particular individual, meaning that Elon's tweet was in reply to my tweet. Somebody is willing to spend $20,000 to buy the reply to my tweet, but I haven't even had an offer yet for the tweet that he was replying to. I mean, if the Elon Musk eggplant tweet to me is worth $20,000, how much is my tweet to Elon worth that he replied to? I mean, it's got to be worth something. In fact, if you're building a collection, how could you buy that tweet and not buy mine. So somebody should be offering uh, to buy my tweet. And if you don't remember what that one was, that was the tweet where I tweeted about how quickly the price of Tesla stock collapsed after he revealed that Tesla had purchased Bitcoin. So I was questioning the wisdom of that decision in a tweet and Elon Musk's thoughtful reply to me was an image of an eggplant. So if that image is selling as a non-fungible token for 20000 And we have no idea. That's the offer. Elon hasn't accepted it. Who knows how high that, that tweet is going to sell? My guess would be buy mine first, right? If you get the tweet that he replied to, uh, when this thing sells, I mean, who knows? That thing can go off the charts. Now, of course, look, I am just teasing. You know, I'm, you know this is tongue in cheek. I mean, obviously, people are going to buy my tweets. I mean, I can't stop people from doing dumb things if they want to do dumb things. Nor am I actually encouraging anybody who's listening to my podcast to buy my tweets. Not as an investment. I mean, if you just want to buy them to give me money, because to be honest, I that's what I think it is. I think it's a gift. I think when people buy my tweet, this guy that wants to pay $4,000 for my tweet, I look at it as a gift, right? I'm going to give him my tweet. He's going to give me uh, uh, $4,000. You know, so if you just want to give me money and you want to do it by buying my tweet, that's fine. But don't buy my tweet because you think you're going to get rich because I think the tweet's going to crash. Now, could it go up? Exactly what I said with Bitcoin, right? In the beginning, I didn't think it's going to work. I think it's going to zero, but how it gets to zero, I've got no idea, right? I didn't realize it would get to 50,000 before it went to zero. So might it go to 100,000? Sure. Who's to say? 
My tweet that's $4,000, let's say I actually sell it for $4,000. Could it go to $10,000? Could it go to $50,000? Could it go to $100,000? I guess. I mean, somebody replied to me when I tweeted something about this myself that, oh, these things will never have any value because they're not scarce. Well, my tweet is scarcer than Bitcoin. I mean, there's not 21 million of them, right? There's only one of that particular tweet, right? So it's more scarce than Bitcoin. So who the hell knows? I mean, I have no idea how valuable my tweet may become before it becomes worthless because intrinsically, that's what I think it's worth. Do I think in hundreds of years, anybody is going to give a damn that you've got a minted Peter Schiff tweet, uncirculated, pristine condition, uh, minted Peter Schiff autograph tweet? No, I don't think it's going to be worth jack shit. But if you actually have something physical, if I'm famous in hundreds of years and you actually have a physical object that I had or maybe that I autographed that's in good condition, that might be worth something. But I don't think a digital representation of one of my tweets will be. But does that mean it can't go up? No, of course it couldn't go up. And to me, fine, I'm happy. I love to see my tweets go up in value. I love to see people buy my tweets and actually sell them and make a profit. Not only because I would make a profit too, I get another 10% on every transaction, but as my tweets go up in value, my new tweets go up in value. So I can sell my tweets at a higher price to the extent that my tweets are working out well in the market and more people are buying them. But my thinking is to the extent that anybody's tweets have value, uh, it's mine. Because if all the tweets have value simply to people who are into crypto and I am the biggest uh, crypto bear, the most famous crypto bear in the world, then the tweets that make me look foolish are gonna be the most valuable. And the more foolish I look in the tweet, the more valuable the tweet's gonna become, both, I guess, on the original market and on the resale market. So if you feel lucky and you know you wanna take a shot at buying tweets, my thinking is my tweets are probably your best bet. <laughs> you know, if somebody actually pays $20,000 for the Musk eggplant tweet, and of course they may pay more. I mean, he hasn't accepted the, the offer yet. And of course, if somebody pays $20,000 for that tweet, it's because they think somebody else will pay more at some point in the future, and maybe they will, who knows? But the point is, that tweet is in reply to mine. So I think that kind of helps set a valuation for my tweets, knowing that I was mentioned in a tweet or a tweet that sold for $20,000 was actually a reply to my tweet. Now, I don't think my tweets will be worth as much as Elon Musk tweets, but hey, the fact that the third most valuable Elon Musk tweet was a reply to my tweet in and of itself says something about the value of my brand on Twitter when it comes to, uh, to Bitcoin. And matter of fact, too, another interesting characteristic about my tweets is that I'm unverified. I mean, even my $4,000 tweet right now, I'm unverified. I mean, almost all of the top value tweets are tweets of verified accounts. I'm one of the only people who's got a high price tag on a non-verified account. Now, at some point, I'm probably gonna get verified on Twitter. So maybe a pre-verified tweet will have some kind of extra collector's value. You know, to have a, a Peter Schiff tweet without the check mark, right? That's a real early one. And so that might be one of the reasons to buy up my tweets now before I get verified and then you no longer have the non-verified tweet. On the other hand, the first time I am verified and I tweet out a verified tweet, the very first one could have some extra value as could the very last non-verified tweet. So who knows? There's all sorts of ways that you can incorporate your Peter Schiff tweets into your collection of tweets in a broader non-fungible token collection. Mm -hmm.